welcome to the last episode of Season 1 of Mesoamerican Studies on Air. In today's episode, we're talking with Dr. David S. Anderson, who holds a PhD in anthropology from Tulane University, received in 2010 with a focus on the archaeology of the ancient Maya. His fieldwork is focused on studying the development of Maya sociopolitical complexity and cultural institutions during the pre-classic period, which he talks about in this episode. This work has involved investigating the origins and growth of political power in a pre-state environment, as well as a critical examination of the role played by the Maya ballgame in development of community identity. Over the past five years, Anderson has become increasingly involved in examining how the academic community should engage with pseudo-archaeological claims, such as the existence of Atlantis or ancient alien contact. His work has sought to move past simply debunking such claims, and instead has turned to look for the roots that allow these ideas to thrive. He is currently working a manuscript for the book Weirding Archaeology, which examines the influences that esoteric spiritual movements, secret fraternal orders, and popular culture have had on the public perception of archaeological research. Thank you so much for being willing to come on here and talk to me today. Oh, my pleasure. I I love doing this sort of thing and uh, outreach. I I love doing any kind of outreach I can get my hands on. Yeah, yeah. And, Um, And I feel like, yeah, it's a really great opportunity to, you know, Talk about some of the issues that are out there. Absolutely. Let's just dive on in to the work that you've been doing, the outreach that you've been doing, trying to correct some of these theories that are going around. Um, so let's let's start with theories of African contact with Mesoamerica. Why do these theories still spread, and why are they harmful? So yes, there there are a variety of, of claims out there, and they've been particularly prominent since the '70s. But we can point back to some older versions as well that there are that archaeological objects or pieces or sites in Mesoamerica show some kind of contact with Africa, and they they have been they've been thoroughly debunked a number of times. There's quite a few articles out there one can go to, uh, but uh, they keep cropping back up, and I think. Some of them, they keep cropping up, uh, particularly at sort of high school educational levels, it seems like, Mm -hmm. uh, where people are seeking to correct uh, some very obvious um, overstatements where, in essence, where we've had a lot of examples that we can point to, uh, where Westerners or Europeans or people of European descent have taken credit for African achievements. Uh, and there's been a lot of reclaiming of the legacy of African Americans and Africans in the world on the world stage, and this seems to get bundled in with that. But sometimes, where people, in essence, are trying to say like, "Oh, oh we we didn't mean to overlook that. We didn't mean to think that you know that Africans couldn't have crossed the Atlantic. Uh, you know, oh, we we were bad, and we've got to correct ourselves." And so they said, "Jump to oh, well, this must be true. Then this must be something that uh, Europeans were mistaken about in the past." Right. Good intentions, maybe not the best method. And so what are some of the consequences that you've seen that negatively affect this concept of Mesoamerican accomplishments? Yeah, you hit right at it. I mean, the, the main consequence here is that you're, there's, it's still an act of taking the accomplishment of one group of people and giving it to somebody else, uh, particularly when we have a very well-defined archaeological record that demonstrates that these are indigenous accomplishments to the Americas. Um, so you know, there, there's a basic level of cultural theft going on there. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a, also ramifications uh, that many people uh, had to deal with, with not just this topic, but all of these sort of alternative and pseudo-archaeological claims out there where we see sort of a tension and a problem with 
uh, authority in archaeology. And in this, this is an example where, uh, in terms of the perception that there is African contact with the Americas, where professional archaeology gets bundled in with structural racism and denial of African achievement. And there are some actual real times when archaeologists have did that in the past. And so it's very easy to bundle some of the missteps of our, prof our profession in the past and say that they're still going on today. And so this, perhaps even more than something sort of more out there like ancient aliens, I think the, the perception that uh, there is African contact with Mesoamerica has an ability to, to do damage to our profession, to, to put our profession in a very bad light because it highlights some very bad things that we have done in the past. Right, and I think that that's a really nuanced point to look at is like you said, the history of archaeology has been fraught and occasionally tainted with racism, right? Um, sometimes more than tainted. And so how, how do you go about navigating the need for corrective action in archaeology, but also maintaining the authority of archaeologists when we're talking about archaeological finds in ancient cultures? It is a hard and delicate balancing act. And I think perhaps the most important thing to state at this point is that we shouldn't pretend or imagine that there is no continuation of racial prejudice or bias in our profession to this day. Uh, it's not as if we've stamped all of this out anywhere in the world. And so I think the best thing we can do as scholars and, and archaeologists is to be aware of our own biases as much as possible and try to understand how the results of our work are going to be perceived. Uh, what someone who is not an archeologist might think when they look at our work and how they might try to understand it. I think that's, especially when talking about pseudo-archeology span issues, I think this is where we have some of our big problems where we presume everyone's on board uh, with archeological thought processes and understands how we're, we're doing our work and why we're presenting, why we're talking about potsherds and stone tools rather than mm -hmm. race or something else in the ancient world. And not everyone is. And so this is something that I think we need to be very aware of our own biases. And we need to be very aware, in essence, of what our audience, if that, especially if it's a public audience, what that audience thinks about our line of work, what kind of assumptions they bring about the ancient world and archaeology to the table when they come to our lectures and listen to us talk. Right. And that's something that I think you particularly have done really well. You know, you found a way of communicating to the public the reasons behind the the why of everything. Um, what would you say has been the most successful strategy that you found for successfully communicating what you do to the public? <laughs> um, that's that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> I, there, you know, I, I certainly got into the, my approach to pseudo-archaeological claims has been deeply informed by uh, several sources that have looked at, in essence. We can debunk these claims but that pretty easily, but the rates of people expressing belief in them doesn't change. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there was a, a great study uh, back in the 90s where somebody uh, did a, a class about uh, paranormal beliefs, and they asked their students at the beginning of the semester, you know, how many of you believe in X, Y, and Z? And at, uh, at the end of the semester, they asked the same question, and uh, belief rates went way down at the end of the semester. We've been talking about you know, psychics and everything else all semester long, and sure enough, at the end, you're like, okay, you're right, they don't, they're not real. But then they surveyed the same, their same students a year later, and all of their rates of belief in these different paranormal claims were just as high, if not higher, than they were before the class. 
Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and so it's I, my general philosophy to this world is that, yes, we need to debunk because we need at a very basic level to be able to say uh, that, be able to demonstrate, let me say, how we know that these claims aren't true. But that debunking process clearly is not enough on its own. And so something that I have been trying to do is explore the background and the history of where these ideas came from, why some of these claims have been popular, and what it is that sort of drives their acceptance to this day. Uh, because in essence, to try and understand the cultural environment that allows these conspiracy or alternative claims or pseudoscience claims to thrive, because that's what's building it up. The, the facts, the, whether this is right or wrong, are not what are promoting and spreading these claims. It's the cultural atmosphere that they exist in. And so I think it's a, we have to shine a light on that cultural atmosphere to the best of our ability. Right. So let's take an example of that. We've already talked a little bit about the theories of African contact with Mesoamerica. So if we took a theoretical example or a factual example, let's look at the example of the Olmec colossal heads and other mm -hmm. Olmec vestiges. So the fact of that, right, is that that's an Olmec artifact. What, mm -hmm. what would you say is the correct explanation or a good process for debunking those ideas and what's the truth behind it? Well, I think, you know, we, we know those are Olmec artifacts. We have a lot of great sources in terms of, we you know, where the raw material came from. Uh, we have lots of evidence from Olmec sites about how they carved these large monuments. Uh, the, all of the iconography in particular, all of the symbols that are found on Olmec colossal heads and other Olmec uh, monuments are all consistent internally to Mesoamerican themes. There's really no sign, there's no material evidence that suggests there's any contact with Africa. The, from the very get-go, from when the very first Olmec colossal head was found, uh, it was actually called a, uh, I believe the term used was Negro head, but they were certainly trying to imply that it was an, of African origin. And this has always been about the, the fact that these sculptures have wide noses and thick lips, and that that is immediately turned into a racial stereotype to suggest, well, only Africans would have wide noses and thick lips. And I think in particular in an issue like this, the general public is very interested in race and race in the ancient world. And that's something that archaeologists and anthropologists don't talk a whole lot about. We've moved on to other issues, if you will. We've talked about the nuances of ethnicity and how identity is constructed. And then we start talking about pottery vessels and stone tools and how those may reflect that identity, but aren't necessarily concrete representations thereof. And all of a sudden, we're way away from somebody who at the other end is like, yeah, I just want to know if they're white guys or black guys. Like, right. you know, we're, we're not hitting, we're not giving an answer that the public is expecting. And so there's a way in which we can talk past that public expectation as a result. Um, the article I wrote several years ago about this topic in particular, uh, I looked at um, how Ivan Van Sertima, who was one of the first big names to really push for the idea that the Olmec hand, uh, heads reflected an African origin or an African connection, uh, I contrasted his methodologies in his book uh, with the methodologies represented in a white supremacist book. Uh, that basically, you know, Van Sertima goes past the Olmec and he starts talking about Egypt, uh, and he talk, starts talking about black pharaohs in Egypt, and. In, in all of his work, Van Sertima basically just says, well, 
that looks like an African person to me. And so I'm going to run with that. Uh, and uh, we, I turned over to some, uh, a white supremacist article about the same thing, about saying, well, no, the pharaohs may change it for white. And they're doing the exact same thing. And then they look at it and they say, looks white to me. And therefore, all of this must be a reflection of European ancestry. These, the way in which we understand and construct race is vital. And it's so self-referential that we cannot throw away what the general public thinks about race in our discourse, especially in our public discourse about what ethnicity and diversity looked like in the ancient world. Um, I think we've seen a few uh, public Twitter blowups about this, particularly around Roman diversity in the last couple of years, uh, where lo and behold, there is racial and ethnic diversity in the ancient Roman world. And the fact that that exists has upset a fair number of people on Twitter for some reason. Uh, so we, we need to, in some way, think about uh, how we are presenting these issues uh, in terms of how the public might understand them and digest them. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think you bring up a really good point that it's important to look at how we can communicate these, these discoveries or these new ideas in a way that answers the questions that the public has, right? Sometimes Mm -hmm. people really have a very straightforward question and they're just looking for the answer to that question. And sometimes we can overstep the mark um, or shoot past it. And that creates these sorts of misunderstandings where people are just kind of left to fill in the blanks. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I certainly don't want to be uh, accused of pandering here in any way, shape or form. Uh, it's not about telling people what they want to hear. It's about mm-hmm. you know, speaking to, to the general public in a way that is comprehensible and understandable. Right. Yeah. So you've, you've done a lot of work, especially through Twitter recently, trying to, engage with the public about these different pseudo-archaeological claims. Most Mm -hmm. recently, it's been combating shows like Ancient Aliens and Megan Fox's new Legends of the Lost. Mm -hmm. Um, So what successes have you seen from your efforts so far, if any? Um, Mm -hmm. And where would you like to see some improvement? You know, it's, I, I think I've, found an audience in a way that I didn't expect when I joined Twitter in particular, and it's given me the opportunity to write for Forbes as well as the Washington Post. And that's, those have been really exciting opportunities. Uh, and I was able, you know, here I was, you know, a couple of years ago, very upset about all the news coming out about uh, Megan Fox Legends of the Lost show as it was developing. Uh, and by engaging with that in a publicly accessible way, I found people wanted to hear more. Uh, and ultimately it led, landed me the opportunity to talk with my fellow archaeologists and to talk about the legends of the lost in particular, uh, both in the Washington Post and in Forbes. And so for me, that was a great success in that I, I was able to reach an audience that I don't think uh, two years ago, I never would have imagined I could have reached an audience that, that large. Uh, right. And certainly I, I've uh, received many sort of very kind and complimentary uh, emails and communications from friends and colleagues about some of that outreach work on these shows. I think. I think we need more. I think we need so much more. I, I get a fair bit of uh, hate mail as well in this whole process. Uh, and uh, I, I upset some people uh, in the last couple of days because I'm currently very concerned about uh, Marvel's next movie franchise. Uh, Marvel is making a, a movie out of their comic books, The Eternals. And The Eternals were written by Jack Kirby back in the 1970s as a very direct uh, and deliberate homage to Eric von Donneken's uh, Ancient Alien books or Ancient Astronaut books at the time. 
Uh, and the, the Eternals was written to mimic and reflect many of the claims and ideas that were coming out of Von Donneken's books and to sort of snag on to the popularity that he had back in the 70s and launch the series. And so that there's a, a very complex problem here, I think, from Marvel's perspective, really, is that since the 70s, the Eternals have kind of, as characters, have wormed their way through the, the Marvel Universe and are found everywhere. Uh, Thanos from the last Avengers movies uh, is actually sort of comes to us from the line of the Eternals. Um, but ultimately, this is all being created out of an ancient alien reference, which unfortunately, the you're, you know, I, I imagine I'm in a safe crowd here, so I can keep this short and simple. Ancient aliens is basically a rehashed colonial trope. Uh, mm -hmm. where we used to see Europeans claiming that indigenous people around the world couldn't build structures, and so we're going to presume it was some lost white race instead. And Ancient Aliens has picked up all the same evidence and a lot of the same sources and just said, instead of a lost white race, we're going to make it aliens uh, who are responsible for these sources. This, this is sort of my great conundrum here now. Is I, I love Marvel, too, in all this process, and yet here they are, producing a major mega blockbuster with some big name actors in it that's going to, at its heart and its core, retread and repeat colonial fantasies about race and capabilities of particular races. Right. And so I, I, I don't know what the right answer is to some of these things. Like I said, I got a lot of people you know, upset about that. The, as I said, you know, even, even bringing that up uh, on uh, social media recently. And I think... I think it's important to be open and honest as much as we can. Like I am a Marvel fan. I love this stuff. I, I read it for fun. I watch the movies for fun. I love TV shows about archaeology. They don't all have to be perfect. They don't all have to be, you know, uh, scientific or scholarly. When I when I was worked up and, and writing about and talking about Megan Fox's show, a lot of people would respond as if I was attacking Fox herself. Mm -hmm. And that was something I was always ex tried to be extremely careful about is I don't care who's hosting the show. In fact, it's probably a pretty good idea to get someone like Fox, someone who is a known public face who lots of people know. That's a great idea to get more interest in archaeology. Right. It was the ideas that the show was spreading and the way they were spreading those ideas that were my concerns in this whole process. And so it's, it's a hard line. I, you know, I, I think a lot of people assume that I just don't want to have any fun. Uh, and that we should never have any, you know, comic books anymore. And we should never have any Indiana Jones movies anymore. Like, no, let's have a lot of fun. But let's recognize what the roots and origins of these ideas are. And let's have an open and honest conversation about those roots and origins. Right. Yeah, I agree. There, There is a certain line between, you know, just not having fun and wanting to represent things accurately. Obviously, like you say, it's impossible to get something 100% right. We, we just can't do it. But there's a level of respect that I think goes into trying to make things as accurate as possible um, so that we can show the respect to those cultures that created those instead of saying that they were so incapable of making them that it had to have been alien. Yeah, the, the, there's that underlying assumption that of, you know, I think the, the underlying assumption behind ancient aliens in particular it's just how dumb humans are <laughs> that they couldn't possibly have figured any of these things out. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, that seems to sell pretty well with people. Uh, right. And a lot of people like hearing that message. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you're not working against fighting all these pseudo archeological claims, 
what other lines of research do you enjoy pursuing? What would you, what would you focus on if you weren't focusing on this? Whew, there are so many things. I, I'm one of those people who unfortunately has many, many, many uh, threads that I always keep trying to pull on. But I think, you know, in sort of more traditional archaeological parlance, one of my favorite issues, you know, my, my dissertation uh, was about a pre-classic Maya site in northwest Yucatan called Shtobo. And it's, you know, I, I'm just going to openly and proudly say that I think it was a chiefdom. <laughs> and you know, other people can jump on me and say chiefdoms. Why on earth are you talking about chiefdoms? Uh, but I love, I love squishy things, which is perhaps a little bit why I deal with paranormal and pseudo things as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but I love this category of social organization, where it's you know there are, are growing population levels and there's growing degrees of political and social complexity, but where you haven't reached that entrenched state level bureaucracy at the same time. I think one of my proudest moments as a professor, I, I taught a whole class a few years ago called The Archaeology of Chiefdoms. And uh, I, the, the first, like two weeks into the semester, I had the students write an essay, like, what is a chiefdom? And they all got out their textbooks and they, they wrote very straightforward, simple answers of like, what is a chiefdom? And then we spent the rest of the semester going through, we did some ethnographic examples, we went through several archaeological case studies of similar uh, societies. And then at the end of the semester, I made them write the same essay again and said, like, tell me what a chiefdom is. Mm. And I think all of the essays I got back were like, I don't know. It's so many possible different things. And <laughs> I, I was so happy. I was like, yes, now you know the, the life that goes on inside of my head. Like these societies exist. There are clearly lots of examples of them. And yet they're so diverse and they're so squishy that you know, trying to put your finger on them. And I guess this is why I just stick with the word chiefdom. Uh, because mm -hmm. we can come up with lots of different names for what these societies of segmentary societies and other uh, you know, concepts that are out there that are good concepts and I don't mean to denigrate, but I, I, I don't like perpetually reinventing a term for this category. And so I'm not saying my term is the perfect term or has no problems, but I just want a term. And so I'm going to stick with a term. <laughs> yep. If you've got one that works, why reinvent the wheel? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think one of the most important things to me a lot of times when I talk about pseudo-archaeological claims, whether they be you know, African contact with Mesoamerica or Atlantis or ancient aliens, a lot of people in the professional world of archaeology seem to assume that I'm making a lot of hay about a very small fringe population. And so forgive me, some of you have heard me say this before, I'm sure. I will keep repeating it for as long as I feel like I have to. Uh, there is a great and fundamental survey being done uh, by Chapman University about paranormal belief. And they ask questions about Atlantis, and they ask questions about ancient alien belief. And uh, as of 2018, I'm waiting for the 2019 survey data to drop. It should drop in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but in 2018, 41% of Americans said, yes, there is evidence for ancient alien contact in the archaeological record. 57% of, of the survey population said that they believe that Atlantis or something like it existed. Their Atlantis question is a little bit problematic. Uh, there's you know, they, they wrote the question broadly to reflect Atlantis, as well as things like Lemuria and Mu. Uh, but they, the way they word the question is a little bit awkward. And so I can, you know, some people might be answering that question in ways that we wouldn't consider pseudo, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the ancient alien question is clear and unambiguous. You think ancient alien, no, you know, people just watch the show to laugh. They just think it's funny or, oh my God, this isn't a real problem. Why are you talking about this stuff? 
41% of Americans have said that they believe ancient aliens are real. And that was just last year. As of three years ago, that number was in the 20%. Uh, it has been going up steadily every year, and we'll see what happens with the 2019 survey data. But this, I think, is a huge, gigantic problem that we're not always acknowledging as a real problem. Right. That's a huge increase. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is more than doubled in the last few years. Right. <laughs> so there's definitely a need to keep sharing this information, to make it accessible to the public, and to find a way to communicate this um, consistently, I guess. Yes, that, that we need to, to acknowledge this is a problem. This is something that's not going to go away by ignoring it. And it's mm -hmm. not going to go away. It's not going to go away without transparency. We need to be, you know, we were talking about some of the racial legacies in archaeology. We have to be transparent that there are problems in our own discipline, too, uh, to mm -hmm. own up to all of these things. Right. I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, first of all, for the work that you are doing, for the experiences that you've had in sharing this information, and then in exchange, making that information available with other academics so that we can keep sharing the, uh, the discoveries that are being made. And thank you as well for making the time to chat with me today. It's been really great getting to talk to you. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to have you back on sometime soon. That would be fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this, Catherine. I really appreciate it. I always appreciate a chance to talk about these issues. My pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. You can find more links to David S. Anderson's online profiles on the MesoamericanStudiesOnline.com website. As we wrap up season one, I want to give a huge thank you to all of our invited speakers, everyone who's come and made this first season as spectacular as it has been. I invite you to check out Season 2 of Mesoamerican Studies On Air, launching in January of 2020. We're going to be changing the format up a little bit so that we get more background information in between each invited guest. So if you're looking to learn more about Mesoamerica, be sure to tune into those episodes as well. In the meantime, happy holidays to everyone, and I look forward to seeing you in Season 2.